And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now on the Harbinger Media Network, which is a wonderful network of podcasts and other content that you can check out as well. I am Stefan Hostetter, your host. And we are here with a special episode of a full-length interview with Alessandra Nicarado, the author of Imminent Domains, Reckoning with the Anthropocene. Thanks so much for being here. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. And I should say off the top that this book is already out. So you can, as you are listening to this, you can spend the hour listening and going out right now to get this book if you like or find it online. But Alessandra, as a way to, of introduction... Can you tell us a bit about how you got interested and involved in the climate movement? You know, I grew up right in the center, part of downtown Toronto at a little alternative school filled with parents who were artists and activists. So I really grew up in protests. I grew up when I was 16. I went on a class trip to the Quebec City FTA protest and got tear gassed on a class trip at 16. So I feel like I was raised in it. There wasn't a lot of like, hmm, what's going on in the world is disconnected from the life you're living and the art you might create is, uh, has nothing to do with the context that we're all facing. So really, this has just been the way I've been engaged in my life. And that has always been how I've shown up in my life and in my art and how I've understood the role of a writer or an artist in the world. You've written you know, other books before, I understand. And so I'm curious what you sort of set out to do with this book specifically. What was your intention behind it? Yeah, so my previous book was a book of poetry in 2019 called Reorigin of Species. And this book, Imminent Domains, I would say is quite connected. These are lyric essays that also really contemplate our relationship in, with the environment in a deeply personal way. And I wanted to think about that relationship, that intimacy, that interdependence in a way that was personal and close and embodied and not as based in facts and figures and told through a lens that can feel kind of distanced and depersonalized and othered and a list of facts and figures that might someday come or might be really more connected to someone else. So really this book for me and the work I do in my own life is about sorting out and navigating where I fit in relationship to this world and ecological processes. Even as someone who grew up in the heart of downtown, very little access to nature and coming from, you know, a family without a lot of money, without a lot of ways to leave the city and access nature. And that's really a, a strong thread through the book is how we find that connection in a context uh, like downtown Toronto. You name dropped the Anthropocene in the title. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, as you go through the book, in, in the introduction, you sort of discuss all the different potential names that this age could have. And 
even sort of when the Anthropocene theoretically could be said to have begun and all these sort of different ways to sort of pick at that sort of idea. And, and for those who may not be familiar, the Anthropocene basically is the idea that it is the, that we've entered a new age of geologic time, basically, which is, which is with where we as humans are having the greatest impact on the, on nature itself. But yeah, so I'm curious, you know, as you thought around a naming the book, but even just through the whole process of this work, how do you sort of see the world we live in right now and this time we live in right now? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a really good question, right? Because I definitely named the book Reckoning with the Anthropocene and not just like, this is what it is, because my contemplation throughout the years I spent writing this was this reckoning with what we give name to and how we give title to and what the impact of that languaging and storying of this time is that I don't really think can be given a single name. And a wanting to question and reckon with the idea of titling and naming. So I really understand or think of this as a time of like profound interconnection, which it always has been. I think that underlines our life, our way of living, our existence completely, but more and more that interconnection shows up in like profound ways, which I think we have experienced more and more in the COVID-19 pandemic is a kind of interconnection, interdependence that allows for these like instantaneous shifts to impact all of us in like a split second change. So that's sort of deeply what I contemplate or understand is this time sort of like strongest indicator of this time is maybe how I would put it. But I also hold to this understanding that I don't really think it's someone like my place to give this a single name or to say what it is. I think when you look at fossil records or you look at what's really indicated, what's really brought us to this moment in time and shaped the environmental crisis we're in, what we're really talking about is a legacy of colonialism that is like so clearly drawn in every record there is. And so giving it, disguising it in different names is like a way to again depersonalize it or to kind of make a blanket statement that we as humanity, as one species have created this and we're all kind of sharing this impact equally when that's not really what the story not really what the story shows when you look at things pretty much through the lens of any discipline. I would say. <laughs> at least that's my, that's my take on it. But I, a lot of people agree in a lot of different, through a lot of different lenses. So yeah, I would say really the hot take of this book is that we're in a time of profound interconnection. And that's what we've wrought to kind of our peril, but also to possibility. And the name we give that can be varied, but that's deeply what I feel in my life and in my body as it's gone through a lot of challenges that have come up through climate change, things like Lyme disease, things like COVID-19. So it's, it's quite a journey to be on. For sure. You said two things I want to unpack, but let's start with this yeah. interconnection piece, because 
I find that so interesting. So when you say that, I, I feel like I get it, right? Like you can imagine how we are in a world that is in many, many ways more connected than ever, right? The speed of which pathogens can travel, the speed of which information can travel, the ability for us, you know, here in the world, like here in Toronto that, I, that I'm sitting in, to be able to speak to someone across the world instantaneously is profound and truly something that was obviously never possible even, even 30 years ago. Telephone lines sure existed, so there was like some version of that, but like we are obviously much more connected. And yet we are also experiencing a crisis of disconnection. You know, we are also experiencing this moments of there are articles after articles about how lonely people are and how disconnected we feel from, from nature. And so it's, I wonder if you got to pack a little bit this ways that we are so obviously more connected and yet in somehow within that ability to be so connected, we are experiencing it almost exactly the opposite. It's like the ability to connect with everyone means you connect with no one. Oh, yeah. This is the paradox, right? And I do feel like the process of writing this book was a process of being with profound paradox in my life and in my research and in my spirit, really. And even into even in the introduction of the book, this is the paradox I was speaking to because it's the paradox I was experiencing as I wrote this book, which was the most like profound interconnection we experienced within the global pandemic and the most profound isolation at the same time. Like the most profound isolation happening at the same time for everyone. And, and so I wrote this book in a state of like profound isolation, like literal isolation. <laughs> so it's a really interesting process to contemplate interconnection at a time of like complete solitary isolation, which is really the tension present in the actual weaving and writing of the story. I think that the interesting thing is that even that isolation is not our own, right? It's a systemic isolation. And one thing I think about often is there's such a strong narrative of self-responsibility and individualized experience that our experience of isolation and loneliness is our own. And we should cope with that through, you know, self-care or getting out there more. And likewise, that changing environmental outcomes requires like riding our bike more when really when you look at what's happening on larger scale, it's not, at least I see it as not really an individual story. And our, our loneliness or isolation can be understood maybe differently and with more tenderness and care if we see it as being kind of the result and almost a necessity of how these systems run, of how kind of systemic 
yeah, in order for a lot of systems to run, the result is a lot of personal isolation and disconnection and fragmentation within communities that can feel like a personal failing, but is actually a required part of the system. So that's something I continue to sit with. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting ways that that the ways of thinking about that connect with the decisions that are made, even in very disparate systems, you know, like the way that our urban planning systems, for example, sort of destroy the ability to have third spaces that are not consumable spaces, right? Like the, the constant degradation, especially here in North America, of having a space that is not your home or work, which you can be in without spending money, is increasingly harder and harder and harder. And, you know, like it seems like the last refuge is, is the library, but even that has been sort of getting, you know, attacked in so many different ways. And so you end up with these other places of like, oh, it's a coffee shop or it's a, it's a bar where you again, have to be consuming to be able to be there. And even actually back in when we were youths, the idea of a mall was a place for teenagers to go and be because you could actually sort of loiter in a way. And yet malls are dying. You know, and so we are truly losing almost all spaces to form these connections with people because the system is being is designed in a way to sort of further privatize almost every single space that could be public without consuming. And that drive, that creation of that world is, yeah, is outside of our hands, right? Like any individual person can't make, a, like they can open up a space that tries to fill that void, but the planning that goes behind it really is out of their individual control. For folks who've listened to the show a few uh, for a while now, or even for the last few months, may know that I've been on an Octavia Butler kick for the past year, basically. And the, in one of the one of the openings of one of your sections, you quote Octavia Butler's "Parable of the Sower." And one of the things that I found myself talking about a lot recently with fellow activists and, and other folks who sort of are trying to sort of reckon with now is the. The ways that I find even dystopian future fiction in some ways reassuring because the world still exists. People are still having lives. And, and so even in these fictions where the world was many ways falling apart, that's very much the reality of Parable of the Sower, it still is in some ways for me useful to imagine alternative futures because it just gives you some kind of path forward when in this world right now, it sort of feels like we're all waiting for a fall. You know, you're all waiting for something to happen. And I think that's a sort of a myth. I think this is like a myth of the apocalypse in some ways. But so the question to you is, how do you see the power and value of fiction and, and really storytelling in general? Because, you know, your book really, as you said earlier, it's not a traditional sort of science book. It's not, it's, it is very personal. It is very storytelling based. And so how do you see the value of that in helping us imagine and create alternative futures? What a wonderful question. Thank you so much. I love speculative fiction a lot. My cat is named Ursula after Ursula K. Le Guin. This is my jam. So, you know, I'm a poet and nonfiction writer who secretly wrote her MFA thesis in speculative fiction. No one even knows, but I've announced it on this radio show. So I deeply believe in the power of these stories to help us 
shape world. I was talking yesterday, actually, about, in particular, one of the essays looks at the mining of healing crystals, so-called healing crystals. And the person I was talking to was like, so what's our option? What do we do here? And I'm like, well, it's hard to say with most of the things I write about, but in particular, crystals, diamonds, these are industries where narrative and storytelling has shaped them completely. Certain industries like that, you can see how story is the languaging, the storying we're doing of this resource is like the profoundly, like the complete shaping of the industry. And so I just use that as an example and of how the world is even already being so deeply and profoundly shaped by the stories we tell about relationship to certain resources, which I think is also a way that restoring and reshaping can have really profound change on our relationship and use of that resource like very quickly you know and that is a place for world change in small ways that can have really direct impacts i do think we are playing out finding out how to live with each other in a changing world and imagination has a lot to do with how we figure that out and yeah, that art has a deep and profound role to play in that. I kind of want to dive in a little bit to that because I do think that one of the fundamental ways I would describe our current moment is a crisis of imagination. That it feels like very much to me, and it should not be surprised any long-term listeners of the show, that so many parts of our world right now are sort of the quote-unquote reasonable people telling us that different is impossible, that better is impossible, and that all we should expect is sort of a managed decline of our society until it collapses, which honestly is, to me, what makes the, as a quick sense, what makes Parable of the Sower such a perfect book to read right now, because it is so much about the sort of push and pull between radical change and the dangers that radical change have it has compared to the sort of sensible, rational decline until collapse. And to me, I think we have to break out of it. You know, we have to find a way to try for better, even if it comes with acts, you know, bad. Like, yes, there'll be unintended consequences. And yes, there'll be things we have to make sure we manage. But right now, we're, what we're accepting is, is bad for many people. Huge swaths of humanity. It's, it's good, and it'll only get worse as climate change gets worse. And so I wonder, you know, as a, as a poet, as an artist yourself, how do you sort of see imagination and how, do, how would you even recommend people begin to exercise their imagination? Like, how can we as a society break out of some of these ideas and just try imagining different things and try giving ourselves the freedom to believe in different and to play out scenarios in our heads and imagine a world that is that is more equitable and that takes climate change seriously and, and does all the things that's I think, you know, if you ask people at the front, most people would say, yes, I want all those things. And yet we're told time and time again, that better is not really possible by those who actually have real power. 
I will say for me, my process or my practice, kind of my repositioning of like what I was taught in my life versus what I've learned is that I am I am deeply not the protagonist in this world and there's so much I don't know. And I feel like I, I live in a world that tells me like, we know how it's going to go. Us humans, like we run this show. And in that narrative, like we know that there's not much hope or we know that we're on this downward spiral or we have this like clear sense of like the story as it's going to be. And there's not, that cannot leave a lot of room for possibility. Being present with uncertainty, being present with what we do not know, being present with the expansive possibilities that are real right now is not an easy thing. It is the working of this book, I feel like fundamentally is to be present with the unknown, be present with the unknowing in a time of emergency. And I do believe that's a very difficult and painful thing. And I do also believe that that is a practice of creativity and it's what allows us to have room for what can come from us that is unexpected, that isn't what we're being told is possible. I don't know what's going to happen. Really, none of us do because ultimately any of our constructed powers are smaller, I would say, than nature. And, and that is what I believe a fundamental shift has to be in our understanding of dynamic. And I do believe everyone has like incredible, creative, innate power. And that that's a bit of a space where it can be built is in the space of uncertainty and unknowing and really finding a way to be present enough, which can be incredibly painful. I think there's a lot of grief and like thawing of the numbness we are taught to cultivate in order to be present with our unknowing. And that's kind of required for imagination to thrive. But I do feel like that's crucial. That makes a lot of sense. And so very connected to that question. I'm curious how you see a, a path forward towards healing this this broken world. What are the things that we can be practicing and, and working on to you know bring ourselves more in alignment with with nature? I don't know if I would call it a broken world. I think that's fair. And I guess my positionality would be that we are on an earth that is so much bigger and has its own like knowing and processes that we as a species don't like are missing a lot of understanding on or that holds so much more power. And so we could say there's breaking in our species. And then still I would say, are we collective in how we're acting? What is this we? There is so much fragmentation. There is so much breakdown. There is so much loss and threat and emergency and uncertainty and unknowing. And truly, I don't say any of that to undercut in any way what we are facing. 
What I mean more is I don't know. I deeply don't know. And that is both terrifying and also what I do know is that I am not like fully in charge, like a being with, I guess what I'm trying to say is it feels like we can't solve the issue using the same skill, the same tools that created it. And I do believe a fundamental part of the problem is believing we are the boss and like totally in charge of this planet. And so there's some fundamental shift in how we show up for this process that involves um, finding our way together. I mean, I got I will say that, that I do think that fragmentation versus coming together as communities, coming together, listening. Yeah, definitely where colonialism and settler colonialism, extractive colonialism have been like the core root of what's brought us into crisis. Definitely that is foundational and fundamentally what continues to need to be addressed in terms of leadership and reversal land back and indigenous leadership, I think is the only way forward. And in terms of where we are really going, I, I don't know. And my work personally is like, how can I show up for that uncertainty without becoming so numb that I just shut down and writing my way into that, writing my way back into love with this world is a way to really engage with it and be here now. And that's what I've been working to do with this book. And my hope is that this book is an offering and a gift that helps others do the same for themselves. That people read this and are like, oh, this my story. My love of water is this story. And this is what draws me home when I'm terrified. This is what brings me back to the shore. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, the Breach Show, and the Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. So the last section, I want to talk a little bit about the formatting of the book and also sort of the work and the traveling you did to, to that brings all these stories together. Because 
you know, the book has you traveling all around the world and experiencing so much. And so I'm curious if I can get you to tell us a story, you know, from the book. Are there any of these moments that really stand out to you that sort of, you know, stick with you in your mind maybe more than others or just one that you like telling right now? That's also fine. Oh, <clears throat> there are a lot of stories in the book that were complex and joyful to return to and share and have the chance to really dive into the complexity of the context and the history, some of which I understood at the time, some of which I didn't. One in particular, Mountain That Eats Men, is the essay that looks at uh, mining in Cerro Rico in Bolivia. And that was a mine that I visited in 2007, around the time that Evo Morales was first elected. And that was a really formative experience, entering those mines with cooperative miners deep into the mountain at a time where I didn't fully understand the context of that mine. And coming out of that mine at a day of celebration, so really returning out of that mine, and there was a lot of dynamite being blown up. It was really powerful and moving experience that it's been many years unpacking, learning from the complexity of my presence there and the deep, deep history of that mountain, which people, many people say is where the dollar sign originated from, from the sign of the Potosi mine pressed onto silver coins that came from the mint there. That mine really so much silver was extracted from that mountain that it formed the basis of the wealth for the spanish empire and really like formed the base first global currency and these are all things that have like expanded in my understanding as i've had the chance to write this book and can trace back to this you know afternoon when i was in bolivia um, I was headed to a political performance art festival in Argentina and found myself there. And so there is this kind of tracing back of my own footsteps and then tracing back of so many footsteps. So it's been really powerful to do that. Yeah. So that's one of the journeys in the book. Amazing. Thanks so much. And so the other part about the, the sort of formatting the book that I found so interesting was, was the way that you sort of break it down into the elements. And then also you have this latter half of accompanying text you describe as the sort of fungal network or, or mycelium that underlines the work. And so I'm curious if we can talk a little bit about how you sort of saw this work as reflecting the living world. You know, it, again, I think it's part of this sort of personality and that personalness that of the book that it holds as well. But yeah, how did you think through this and, and what was your relationship with that decision? I have a lot of background in academia, background in creative writing and talk about narrative structure and plot structure. But I also have a strong spiritual practice that's really rooted in environmental activism and ancestral practice. 
And so this book is interestingly a meeting point of all three of those things. It draws from my academic background. It has a lot of my creative work in it. And I could have drawn from those to create the structure of this book. But really what came to the surface was my spiritual practice, which is rooted in this idea of how I personally and through lineage interact with ecological patterns in the earth, which is really to continually be turning to the elements of this world, greeting them, thanking them, deepening my sense of responsibility and connection and care, which is a really cyclical process. So that's the underpinnings. That's the understory of the understory of this that people might not know. But will it, what I will also say is that it didn't feel like this book was being asked to be told in some kind of like hero's journey or A, B, C equals D or like, here's your beginning, here's your middle, here's your end, because that's not what the story is, that we don't know where we're going. We're really turning around in cycles. The cycle of nature is not linear. It's not hierarchical. It is moving in a circle. And this work really came out of me in elemental form. The work was really naturally focused on and anchored in elements of this world. And the essay showed up that way before the book was structured that way. And the under, in terms of the understory of the last section of the book, which is called The Understory and holds these companion essays and additional research, that's how it felt. It felt like there are these like stories we're living, relationships we're living, and then there are these deeper tangled webs of facts and financial figures that are happening kind of unseen in the forest floor, in the underground networks beneath the city. And the form also told me that that's how it would show up. And for every essay I was writing, some of those essays had these other pieces that really wanted to be told. And what showed up was this kind of interconnected section that really told a bit more of the, the background, the underbelly. So where there's an essay about crystal mining, the mining of healing crystals, there's an understory essay about diamond mining and that kind of history that's aligned, but different. Yeah, so in a sense, I, I wrote a lot of this before the essay told me. The book told me what the form would be and just tried to really listen to it. But I think it also reflects how I am engaging with the world all the time. And I wanted to allow it to reflect the world more than it reflects the systems we've constructed. The tack that you sort of take is is a little bit much more, I, I would say honestly meditative, you know, in that it is much more about here's sitting with these different concepts at different times and then connecting them into yourself and letting people sort of feel and think about them and then ultimately you know, move on to the next thing, which isn't, which in some ways breaks down really the, the in some ways also the structure that we, I think, 
our, that maybe is the more destructive version of our culture of the idea of progress, even, you know, like the idea mm -hmm. that you're progressing through a story or, and that everything now was better than it was hundred years ago because you're sort of going that direction. And I think both of those structures sort of need to be questioned pretty significantly in terms of how is a, is it really, you know, do stories happen linearly and do, are we really in a world of ongoing progress? I'm, I'm curious if during your process of writing this book and, and thinking about it and, and meditating on it, if there's anything specific that you sort of were like struck by, you know, so often I feel like when people do most of the research, there are a few things that, that they come onto, then they're like, wow, how does the world not know about this thing? Or that really sort of caps your attention or, or something that you think that world really should know or could, would be value to add to the, to the discourse around these topics. And so is there anything that you learned while putting this together that you feel like the world should know? That happened a lot, actually, as I did this work, partially because I was really letting the research lead me in some way, but also because when you name a book Imminent Domains, you're really looking for, looking at things that are changing quite rapidly. And there were a few things I looked into that continuously really challenged and brought in unexpected ideas. Uh, one of the essays I worked on, really every few months, I would have to update the research. And I was writing about Lazarus species, which are species that are considered extinct and then are found again. And an endangered species board game I played as a child. But as I was writing about the black-footed bear, my favorite childhood species, I discovered during my writing of the essay, it had been cloned. It was the first endangered species to be cloned in the United States as I was writing it. And then I started to find out a lot more about de-extinction technology. And as I was doing my final copy edits, I found out that this whole woolly mammoth de-extinction project had been sold to a for-profit company and invested in by the actor playing Thor. So really, things are moving very fast in the direction I sort of was forecasting, which is that it's possible the woolly mammoth may come back with funding from Chris Hemsworth, a.k.a. Thor. Things move quickly and in unexpected ways, and some of it's funny, some of it's heartbreaking. A lot of unexpected things came up for me as well around research into so-called healing crystals, and that research took a lot of time. It took a lot of time to get, trace the information and try and figure out with some level of accuracy what's happening in terms of sourcing and was pretty heartbreaking to find out the conditions of miners and really how impossible it is to find anything you could call ethical in terms of those crystals. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that after anyone in movie business, after watching, you know, the number of Jurassic Park movies that come out, they would have thought that perhaps we should not try to recreate a bunch of extinct animals. But maybe we just want to live in a in a weird world where woolly mammoths run us all over. But you know, that, I I understand the appeal there, at least in some ways. 
but hey, I did not know that. I did not know that we are de trying to, wow. That's like a fascinating technology that, there you go. That's exactly the kind of thing. That's exactly the kind of thing that I find like people often have. And that's actually one of the more fun ones. Usually it's super depressing. You know, like the like the fact that all healing crystals are are depressing. You know, that's the kind of yeah. thing that you normally get. But every once in a while you get a fun one. So yeah. if people really wish to live. Yeah, exactly. So both. You gave one of each. I really appreciate it. So if people really want to uh, want to live in a woolly mammoth world, we might get there. Although it'll be very hot for them. But anyways, I'm sure they'll figure it out. Well, they wouldn't be like exactly woolly mammoths. It would be a hybrid of a woolly mammoth with an African elephant, which is their closest living relative. Okay. But at the same time, a hybrid woolly mammoth. So, yeah, they're working hard to make it happen for profit. Right. So For profit, yeah, which is also more terrifying. You know, it's like now, does that company own this animal? Like, can you own entire species? That seems bad. Yeah, it does seem bad, but it is potentially patentable to create a species of that sort, which is the basis of one of the essays. The questions in one of the essays in the book, Lazarus Species, is about, about this tech, this idea that if we can bring a species back from extinction, maybe it's like not such a big loss, but really the investment that's happening in it is has a lot to do with the potential financial outcome of right. creating really a Jurassic Park of woolly mammoths. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the ethics of being able to own a species is a little terrifying to me, to be perfectly honest. So maybe that one also is depressing. Maybe everything is depressing. But true to your word, that's a, a fascinating topic. So thank you so much. So folks who've heard this and want to buy, want to learn more about the book or buy it, how can they do so? You can definitely order the book from your local independent bookstore, which is an awesome way to support bookstores and the publisher. You can go online to my publisher's website and order directly from them. They are Book Hug Press. Or you can find me, Alessandra Nacolato. And I will lead you there. Amazing. Well, it's our tradition on the show to give our guests the last word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to thank you for being on the show. And then I'm going to throw to you for any sort of last word to talk to directly to our audience before our music plays us out. So thank you so much, Alessandra Nicarado, the author of Imminent Domains, Reckoning with the Anthropocene in bookstores now. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. And any last words? Thank you for having me here and thank you to everyone for listening. I hope that whoever is able to read this book is able to receive it as the kind of love letter to this world that I mean for it to be and find their own love letter to write to this world, even with the crisis that it's in. <laughs>